Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a Q&A session. We're going to do a couple of these before we jump into our next Bible series, which Peter Lightheart will announce in this episode. In this episode, the guys will be answering questions about the state of theological education, hyper or full preterism, references to Sheba in the Bible, as well as where James B. John and James Jordan differ in their work in the book of Daniel. We do have plenty of upcoming events that you can check out in the show notes. Next week, we will be having our intensive course with Peter Lightheart in Pauline Theology. We have an upcoming online workshop with James B. John and Alistair Roberts on biblical numerology. There will be a regional course here in Birmingham on May 19th and 20th. That'll be with Peter Lightheart in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And coming up this summer, we also have our yearly Theopolitan Ministry Conference, our yearly feast, and the beginning of the next round of the Fellows Program. For more information about all of these events and to register, there are links in the show notes for you. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening as always, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers answering your questions. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background. He's recording everything, and we'll edit it all together and make sure that it gets to you. Last time we finished our series on James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, Uh, we've completed that series. And uh, before we start another series, we're going to take a couple of episodes to answer questions that have been submitted by podcast listeners. So we'll be doing that in this episode and also in the next episode. And beyond that, uh, we have all agreed in together, there's been a, a meeting of the minds, I think a work of the spirit that's brought us to the conclusion that we should go ahead with the Deuteronomy podcast series. So uh, in a few weeks, we'll begin going through Deuteronomy. That's a very large book, as you know, and so we may break it up into smaller sections, or we may get some momentum going and just want to get through the whole thing. But we do want to uh, tackle a larger book from the law. We've done some smaller series on portions of the law, but uh, this will be the the first time we've tackled an entire book in the Torah, and we want to uh, give that a try and see what we can so we, see what we can come up with. That's coming up in a few weeks. Uh, but this week we're starting with uh, we're doing a couple of uh, we're doing an episode on uh, questions and answers that you you all have submitted to us. First question I'm going to pose and then make a few comments before I open up to the rest of y'all. One listener asks, "What is the state, current state, or the future of theological education?" And uh, I have a couple of somewhat uh, conflicting initial comments. And part of this is based on my own experience. I went to Westminster Seminary back in the middle 1980s of the last century, the 20th century. Uh, And I found it a really enriching time. And I found it, uh, I think it's, I had the kind of experience that would be hard to replicate in another kind of setting. And there are two, two sides to that. One is just the opportunity to focus in on theological study without distractions. I had the benefit of uh, not having to do a lot of work. I had some money to support me and my family. I didn't have to do a lot of work, so I wasn't working my way through seminary. That was a benefit. And I was able to basically spend my full time studying theology. And that kind of focused study, I think, pays rewards that it's hard to get if you're trying to do a a seminary uh, 
on little bits and pieces or you have to work or you spread it out over a number of years. I was, I was at Westminster for three years and basically just studying the whole time. Uh, the That's one side of it. The other side is the instructors. Um, I was privileged to take my New Testament courses, Pauline theology courses with Richard Gaffin, who is a longstanding figure in Reformed theology and Reformed study of the New Testament. And uh, there's there's nothing quite like sitting in a class, listening to somebody lecture on Romans, somebody who has spent basically their entire adult life studying that part of the Bible. And uh, every class was like that, of course. You have people who are studying certain sections of the Bible who have made that a specialty, and they have a depth of understanding and a depth of a depth of knowledge and insight that it's hard to replicate. Uh, Vern Poitras was another. Uh, I took hermeneutics from Vern Poitras and some other courses from him. And uh, again, somebody who's been thinking about hermeneutics language and has done it in, in a depth that it's, again, it's hard to replicate outside of that kind of academic setting. So that's on the on the plus side. The, the minus side, which I think a longstanding issue for seminaries, it's never been a real viable financial decision to pull up stakes from your hometown, from your home church, stop working if you're working, and spend tens of thousands of dollars to go to seminary for a few years. Uh, if you if you pull up stakes and go to law school, then you have the prospect of being able to pay off law school debts because you're 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 going to be a lawyer presumably at the other end. If you if you go to medical school, then you have some prospect that you're going to have uh, money to make. But you have you know you go to seminary, students get into uh, sometimes significant debt going to seminary, uh, and then they don't have the opportunities to get into positions. The number of positions that are high-paying positions in churches are much smaller than the high number of high-paying positions in, proportionally much smaller than the high-paying positions in medicine or law or some other profession. So I think that's one of the drivers. There are other drivers, of course, for the current uh, uh, crisis of seminaries, but I think there's a long-standing economic crunch. Uh, and as other opportunities for theological education have opened up, people have jumped at the chance to avoid that that financial crunch and get their seminary training otherwise. I suspect that in the next few years, we'll see a large number of Christian colleges either scaling back and seminaries either scaling back considerably or closing. We've already um, seen um, signs on that front from King's College in New York. It seems likely that they're moving towards closing. Um, there are a number of others that I think are moving in that direction. The economics and the demographics aren't there anymore. There was a um, the drop in birth rate um, is going to start to hit um, a number of colleges. There was a sudden dip, and I think colleges need to factor in that, among other things. Also, we're living in a very different cultural situation where I think the sorts of opportunities that there were in universities in the UK and elsewhere to have um, theology departments that were hospitable to conservative scholars, um, that may be drying up. I think it's worth noting the number of evangelical leaders who studied in the UK or in Europe to do their PhDs, and that has been a very important um, context within which the American evangelical mind and the evangelical mind more generally has been forged. 
And so the loss of that, I think, will be quite considerable. Um, Alan Jacobs has talked about the character of what he terms um, the subaltern counterpublics, the sort of groups that evangelical set up as their own protected contexts within which they can engage in thought that is less provided for within the wider society, which is no longer so hospitable for them in their elite institutions. And that, I think, has the effect of siloing a lot of evangelical thought. So a lot of good thinkers will find themselves in contexts where they're um, just restricted from e expansive conversation. They're um, maybe big fish in small ponds or there's just a restriction upon the degree to which they can sharpen their thought in dialogue with others. So I think all of these will be dynamics that will feel the effect of in the future. And these things are already in play. Um, I think we're going to see significant cultural and economic changes that lead to a very difficult situation for Christian colleges and universities and seminaries. And at this point, we need to think about in some ways, alternative models, but also to an extent, um, life rafts, as it were. What are some ways in which we can um, salvage what we can as certain places close? And alongside that, what are some of the ways in which we can strengthen what remains and consolidate people who might otherwise be really isolated and form networks? And I think it's one of the things that Theopolis is trying to do to fill some of the gaps in seminary education to create contexts where there can be a more expansive form of Christian catechesis, um, training people who may not have the, um, the time or the resources to attend a traditional seminary education and yet giving very solid biblical and liturgical teaching and cultural preparation. These sorts of challenges, I think, require a lot of creativity and imagination, because I don't think that the traditional models that we've been relying upon are going to be the ones that take us um, into the next few decades. And that's too bad in many respects, not in all, but in many, because I will echo what Peter says, just my seminary education in the 80s, just almost kind of a monastic feel to it you you know you leave your work you leave your vocation you spend three years concentrating on studying scripture studying church history theology all those all those topics you get in seminary and it's it's extremely helpful and the other thing i'd say about that is uh because you're in an institution you have all these different professors who who have different perspectives. One of the values, for example, of having uh, seminaries like Westminster or Reformed or Covenant Seminary that serve the Presbyterian world, the conservative Presbyterian church, is when you go to these institutions and you submit yourself to these professors, you will have to engage with professors that don't have the same theological convictions on certain minor parts points maybe on even major points that you have but when you 
interact with them when you sit and learn from them, when you hear their arguments and their perspective, you're getting a taste of what it's like to live in the larger church. Uh, because if you're going to be a good churchman, not everybody is going to be on the same page as you in your presbytery or even in your church with your elders or or other leaders in your church. So it's a very helpful discipline to have to sit in classes under professors and interact with them and also with other students who you disagree with on certain points. And that in itself is helpful, not just um, in terms of intellectual you know, formation, but also just in terms of learning to live with brothers uh, who have slightly different perspectives on things. So that's that's one thing that's really helpful for theological education. Also, I know I suspect that this question is about, you know, the training for pastors, theological education for pastors. But there's also the question of just advanced theological education. And uh, I don't see how that can happen apart from I don't see how it could happen well, apart from your traditional kind of PhD, uh, THM, STM kind of program where you, I don't have any experience with the, with the British system and I, I think it's fine, but with the American system, it's just lots of seminar classes and seminar classes in my experience have been extremely helpful for me. It's, you know, you sit and to do away with those or somehow make those online or Zoom or or whatever, decentralize that. I mean, you go somewhere and you sit with a professor around a table with five or 10 other students and that kind of intimate setting talking about, you know, whatever topic it might be, whether it's a Bible book or a, or a, or a theologian or a series of books or whatever is is enormously productive and and fruitful it's it's uh it's challenging it, it's and so I'd, I'd hate to lose that and i feel like because of the cost of seminary and because of the cost of advanced theological degrees cost in terms of monetary cost but also cost with families with more and more guys you know coming into seminary that are older it's going to be very very hard to do that. Now, now the interesting thing is, I think in Theopolis is when we do our fellows program, it is something of a of a intense uh, seminar kind of situation or seminars, and um, I think the guys who go through that, that's very valuable to them. I, I think that's helpful. Um, the other thing it comes to mind too is um, I've noticed that. And this is related to my first comments, my first perspective on this, is that guys that have a, a very non-traditional uh, local church-centered mentorship with a pastor tend not to be as um, knowledgeable about other diverse theological perspectives, tend to be somewhat narrow in their convictions and in their practice once again because they're not interacting with others and so they end up having problems because if you're trained in one local church and then you get called to another local church it's not like that church because you haven't experienced 
some of the diversity within your denomination or within your fellowship, whatever whatever ecclesiastical commitments you you have, it's very difficult. And I and I've seen guys, lots of guys actually, uh, fail miserably um, because they haven't been trained. Uh, well, they haven't experienced enough of the diversity within the churches to to be able to navigate that successfully. Um, again, one of the benefits of having a in-house, in-residence theological training for, at least for pastors. Yeah, I think that last point is is uh, sobering because uh, I do, it does seem like that's the tr- the trend or a trend. That is to have local pastors that are mentoring uh, future pastors in within their own within their own ranks, uh, and with the resources you have, uh, you know the, the resources you have on the on the web, uh, courses are available in various venues, so they can get a taste of other people uh, and other people's perspectives. But um, so, and, and there's some there's some strengths to that kind of model because you are getting the kind of hands on direction the practical theology and the practical experiences built into your training rather than being an add-on after you're done with seminary. Yeah, for sure. So I think, there, I yeah, so I think there's some strengths in that, but you're right that you lose something of that, that uh, breadth and diversity. And it's, uh, it's going to be a rare pastor that has the capacity to incorporate that into a, into a, a local mentorship program. He's going to have to rely on most, most pastors are going to have to rely on, resources outside the local church to get that kind of breadth. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. uh, That's the downside, of course, to the traditional seminary model is I've seen this happen over and over again, where guys in seminary just focus on uh, books and on reading and on tests and on papers. The intellectual side, which is important, I think, is very important in seminary training, but they neglect any sort of ecclesiastical training in the church. Uh, I've had guys over the last 30 years here in St. Louis come to me in their senior year and want to do an internship. You know, in the middle of their senior year, I'm like, uh, where have you been going to church? Well, we've been going here, there, hop, hop, skipping a jump, various places. Oh, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm not going to take you on as an intern because you haven't been here for a while, people don't know you. I don't know you. Uh, you waited way too long, and and guys end up doing that so that when they graduate, they might have a, you know, they might have met all the, the the uh, basic requirements of field education or internship, but they really haven't worked in the church. Uh, they really haven't been uh, mentored very well by a pastor because they've been so focused on their uh, academics in, in seminary. And that's a weakness in the traditional model. I, I grant that. I think one thing we could also think about is the, um, we're thinking very much about theological education as training for pastors and advanced theological education. But I think there are new possibilities and a greater extent for lay theological education than there has ever been before. Access to literature, um, access to podcasts, to lectures, to organizations that provide material that is really suited for interested lay parties. And 
I think we'll also see in, in the future a growth in lay education, even while there's a dearth in pastoral education. And that might lead to its own sorts of problems where you'll be more likely to have um, pastors who do not have the breadth of education to deal with some of the sources and the um, sorts of influences upon many of the people in their pews who are reading and being exposed to a far wider breadth of material than they would have been in the past. Well, I think that's exactly right. And that's also a, a, a challenge too. You know, we, we want our members to be theologically astute, but unless what is available to them on the net is curated in some ways, it can lead to all sorts of problems. I mean, uh, in the last, say, three or four years, I continually have to deal with people coming to me and say, hey, pastor, I read this, and this seems right to me. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not, not right. Where'd you get that? And where does, why did it lead you here? Um, and putting out these, you know, potential, you know, heretical kinds of forays, you know, that these members are getting, I'm, I'm like, whoa, be careful. This is not, this is not good. Um, and well, yeah, but you know, look, uh, it's, it's on the net and look at all the people that subscribe and, you know, whatever it's, it is a challenge for pastors to try to figure out how to do that, how to figure out how to, to lead your congregation when everything is open to them. And depending on their personality and their background and their education, they can be easily misled. And, um, you know, nobody wants to restrict. I certainly don't want to restrict what people have access to, but how the question is, how do we funnel people into the best kinds of resources so that they won't get trapped or led astray by all sorts of other nonsense on the net. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I did a um I did quite a long theology course with Steve Jeffrey, actually, who probably a number of you uh here know, which I mean, which was excellent. I think he's just a, a brilliant teacher with that kind of thing and, and superbly knowledgeable on on the thing but one of the uh many encouraging things about that was the fact that many people from his church were kind of going through that same course and doing certain terms perhaps and then dropping out for one and, and coming back and it was structured in such a way that you could do that so if you couldn't commit to kind of three solid years you could sort of pick and choose different um modules and swap in and out but then the other thing was that so I didn't go to his church, but when I expressed an interest in going, he wanted to get in touch with my elders and find out a bit about me and explain what the course um, would be doing and, and, and so forth. And that just struck me then as a very um, helpful way of conducting that kind of thing. So it, it's not like then um, some guy is just running here, there and everywhere to different self-appointed kind of sources of knowledge on, on the internet, but it was just done and run out of churches. And and that kind of model I, I can see being very helpful, God willing, in, in the future. 
there's much more we could say about this whole issue, but uh, that's uh, we're going to move on to some other questions. Um, the second question that we got was uh, a dis asked for a discussion of full preterism and a discussion of the future bodily return of Christ, the future resurrection of the dead, and so on. The uh, final eschatology, what the final end of things. Uh, just to, for those who aren't aware of it in the listening audience, preterism refers to a way of interpreting New Testament prophecies and sees New Testament prophecies as largely prophecies concerning a crisis that was going to happen within the generation of the apostles. The Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark and Luke uh, is a classic example. Jesus predicts uh, what looks like the end of the world and has often been interpreted as a prediction of the end of the world. But a preterist reading would say he's not talking about the end of the space-time universe. He's talking about the collapse of a political world, a religious world. And when he says toward the end of the Olivet Discourse that all these things will take place before this generation passes, that gives us a time frame. And Jesus is, it indicates that Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen within the first century before the last apostle is dead. The setting in Matthew 24 at the beginning of the chapter indicates that the question in, the question in view is the future of the temple. And so a preterist will interpret Matthew 24, other prophecies like that as a prophecy concerning the, the, a near, a, a catastrophe that's coming in the, in the near future. Large parts of Revelation, when I, uh, in my Revelation commentary, I take large parts of Revelation as being about that time of crisis that's occurring in the first century. So full preterism, on the other hand, would say that every every prophecy of the New Testament is fulfilled in that crisis of the first century in AD 70. Uh, there is nothing that is uh, the New Testament explicitly talks about that remains to happen. No, no discussion, no, no passage that talks about Jesus coming back is a, a, a reference to Jesus' final coming at the end of history, as it's traditionally been interpreted and creedly been interpreted. Uh, the, the passage in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the dead is interpreted by some full preterists as a, a prophecy about what's, what, what's happening in and around AD 70. So the resurrection of the body that Paul talks about there and the, the, the seeds that are planted at perishable and that are rising imperishable that's talking about the the rebirth that happens uh, at the time of the end of the old covenant order. So that's that's a set of issues, and it's become uh, it's been an ongoing controversy. Full preterism emerged um, a number of decades ago, and there have been some fairly um, prolific advocates of the full preterist position. Uh, and so, but it's it's come up in in recent uh, it's come up recently as a as one of those hot button topics on the internet. So that's, that's that's the set of questions that we're that we're being asked to to deal with. It does seem very hard to square full preterism with a passage like 1 Corinthians 15 and the bodily resurrection of Christ as the paradigm of our resurrection. Um, if that's just referring to events surrounding AD 70, um, it doesn't seem to fit. It seems also that the early church would have had expectations that were not fulfilled in anything like the way that the promise would suggest. Um, I read most of um, the New Testament as referring to that first century crisis, but 
there most immediately to that first century crisis. But there are a number of passages that I think look beyond that to something that has to be fulfilled in uh, general judgment, a general resurrection um, in the new heavens and the new earth and the restoration of all things. Um, and I think we can also see as we read the scripture with an approach that sees maturation and movement towards glorification and fulfillment as the um, a governing principle for our reading. We'll just see that AD 70 does not actually deliver on what we expect. Now, I think this is one of the features of scripture that we'll often have events that are pointing towards a reality that exceeds them. So for instance, if you're reading the Minor Prophets, again and again, they're dealing with the concept of the day of the Lord. And there are many days of the Lord that are discussed within the Minor Prophets or the Book of the Twelve. And yet within those books, we have a bigger picture of what the day of the Lord means in a way that points us beyond any of those particular events to a greater particular event that lies in the future. I think we have similar things with the way that Matthew, for instance, would use scripture in taking a statement that was originally referred, referring very clearly to Israel being brought out of Egypt and saying that Hosea is actually um, saying something that is fulfilled as Christ comes out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I have called my son is not a statement ultimately about Israel. It's looking beyond that. I think we can see the way that this plays out in something like the book of Isaiah, where in Isaiah we have a number of different horizons that the prophecies look forward to and ways in which each one of those horizons would not fully deliver in a way that draws your attention to some fuller um, degree of expectation, some greater horizon that awaits in the future. So whether that's the Syro-Ephraimite war or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or something beyond that, there's always this expectation we're waiting for something greater. And I think we have this also within Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, in the Olivet Discourse. You can read the Olivet Discourse and see many of the details of that played out in the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, there is a sort of initial microcosmic dress rehearsal of the greater judgment within those events. And then in AD 70, we have, I think, the most um, directly referred to fulfillment. But then that, I think, also anticipates something greater. And so I think this way of reading scripture recognizes that there is that initial horizon, but that initial horizon, much as when we're reading the book of Isaiah or some other passage of the Old Testament, can look beyond itself, even as it has that initial horizon, to a greater, more complete fulfillment of the day of the Lord reality. Right. And we, um, just the other week, were thinking about um, particularly Jim's view, uh, James Jordan's view of the new covenant, which is surely the same idea so the um work of um ezra nehemiah etc the return from exile these these were um related to jeremiah's prophecies to haggai's prophecies etc about the restoration of um israel and yet awaiting 
you know, a greater uh, fulfillment, outworking of that same um, covenant and, and so forth. Um, something that I was um, interested to come across and slightly surprised to come across, and I hope I'm um, representing him correctly, but as we were going through Jim's book, it seems to me that he sees the um, Olivet Discourse um, passages, so the um, skies darkening, the stars falling, etc. He sees um, Matthew's reference to that shaking of the um, heavens to be AD 70, and then Luke's um, use of that to refer to a kind of later echo, a, a kind of similar judgment on the world at large rather than Jerusalem. And, and I think you kind of need something um, like that because um, uh, where are we? But beforehand, it's um, the fall of Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, no, its desolation is near and that's described and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive uh, among the nations until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then there will be signs in uh, the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations. And, and so um, there it seems you need this, uh, the Jews being led away and the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. And, and, and then this, this tribulation uh, coming. And I, I think Jim referred to that as a kind of judgment starts at the house of the Lord, if, if you like. And then there are later echoes on a, a broader world um, stage, which seems to be very much the kind of thing you're talking about, Alistair. Yeah, that's helpful, James. And also, Alistair, um, it seems to me evident that um, the future bodily resurrection of the dead for humanity is not really based on any one particular proof text, um, although there are pretty serious contenders for being a proof text like first Corinthians 15 or Colossians one, where Jesus is the first fruits. Um, but uh, it's, it's the whole of the new Testament scriptures. It, it, it's an argument that's built up from many places and it, exactly as Alistair, you mentioned exactly like what uh, the gospel writers, what Paul is doing when he's reasoning that Jesus is the Messiah or that Elijah is the messenger to come. They, they build up an argument from multiple passages. They don't just take one proof text and show us how what's happening in John the Baptist or in Jesus uh, makes such good sense of the whole story and all the prophecies. It all just kind of comes together. Um, and I think that's also the case with the bodily resurrection of Jesus and um, of, of believers as well. You know, one passage that uh, people like to point to is that that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus, where, where Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and it seems like uh, I've had this happen to me just even recently with someone in the church. Well, that means that there's going to be no physical uh, resurrection of material humanity. Um, the problem is it, it sure does seem like flesh and blood there is just a way of referring to, you know, ordinary, corruptible, decaying human existence, you know, the present physical humanity, uh, which is uh, mortal. Uh, 
and it fits with the argument that Paul's making in First Corinthians 50 much better um, than somehow that being a denial of of any kind of physical human body uh, for future believers. Um, and um, yeah, I'll just say that. Yeah, that seems right to me, Jeff. I mean, it's been stressed at the start of the chapter, hasn't it? Um, the details of Jesus, you know, that he died and that he was buried and that he rose on the third day. And that is so clearly looking forward to the planting of the um, believer's body and then it's being raised incorruptible. That, uh, as Anastasia says, the, the way in which those two things are united and joined together and you can't hold to the resurrection of one without the other, it, it, it becomes so hard to interpret one as uh, physical and one in, in a slightly non-physical way. And I would take there the idea of raised a spiritual body to do with kind of orientation or, or, or glorification rather than kind of uh, materiality or immateriality. Think of kind of how Paul's used that term earlier. You know, the spiritual things are understood by the, the, the spiritual man. You know, it's, it's to do with his yeah, orientation, I would say. Yeah, well, that has to do with the Holy Spirit. I think I'd remind uh, listeners to go back and read Richard Gaffin that Peter mentioned him earlier, his book on the centrality of the resurrection. But wait, I think that book has got a new title, doesn't it? Perhaps. Yeah. Centrality Resurrection, written back in the 70s. And uh, this deals with all those issues. And one of his arguments there is that uh, the spiritual body that Paul talks about here is a, is a, a body that's controlled and and um, by the Holy Spirit um, in, you know, without limitation. And I think that's that's the way to understand that. But again, with this whole this whole debate for this whole debate, go back and read Gaffin's book on the centrality resurrection, or also read uh, N.T. Wright's big old fat book on the resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, there's a lot of help there, uh, both as in N.T. Wright, especially with you know historical kinds of uh, church history kinds of uh, analysis and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, the new title of Gaffin's book is Resurrection and Redemption. Yeah, the, the other passage I was going to refer to is um, Revelation 20 and 21. And uh, the, one of the things that um, a full preterist will have to do is to interpret the millennium as somehow describing the period, maybe, maybe describing a period prior to the coming of Christ. Maybe uh, it's somehow describing the interim age between Jesus' death and the fall of the temple. Uh, talking about that as a thousand-year period is an odd way to talk about it, but there's there are various things that that um, that people have done to to fit that thousand-year period into a into a full preterist reading of the New Testament. But as as Revelation twenty goes on, it's not just talking about a millennium, but it's talking about a period after the millennium, in which there's uh, opposition. the The dragon is able to organize uh, the nations in opposition to the church. Uh, the Lord intervenes, and there's a final judgment scene right at the end of uh, Revelation 20. And then at the beginning of Revelation 21, there's the descent of New Jerusalem from heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. 
uh, there's a, a what I think is a description of the final state of creation as a new heavens and new earth. But that seems like a, a sequence that, again, would be hard to fit because you have here a, a judgment that not only comes after the millennium, but comes after the period after the millennium. And, and it's fairly clear from the beginning of the chapter that the millennium begins with the exaltation of the martyrs who have been uh, suffering faithfully throughout the book of Revelation. They're the ones that are crowned and, in, and enthroned at the beginning of the millennium. And the millennium is the period of their enthronement. So that's not, I don't think it's, I don't think you can talk about that as a period that's prior to the coming of Christ. And it seems it would be very odd to talk about a 40 year period and symbolize a 40 year period as a thousand year period. But then you have the whole sequence that is exactly the sequence that you find in traditional understanding of the last things that you have a, uh, a final rebellion, a final judgment of the living of the dead, a final judgment of all, uh, and then uh, a final new heavens and new earth, which includes the lake of fire in which the wicked are being tormented. So uh, that whole passage seems like a, a sequence that uh, it's hard to fit into a full Paredes framework. And is that's the point where I think Revelation moves beyond the immediate crisis that's coming and begins and, and prophesies something in the distant future. So could someone um, kind of outline for me what um, uh, drives some people to go for full preterism? I, I like to kind of understand the... Um, the arguments in order to sort of engage with them. I totally get the case for partial preterism, but what, what sort of what what is the um, the driver to make people say, okay, I'm going to go full full Monty on this? Well, I don't think that anybody really embraced what we might call full preterism or hyper preterism until the late 19th century, and um, if you read like uh, uh, Russell's book, Stuart Russell's book, or Max King's book. Um, uh, some of it is some of it is based on exegesis, of course, um, but also there's a good bit of kind of philosophical, philosophical, metaphysical dualism here as well. And I've noticed this with with people that I've interacted with over the years in my congregation who get taken up or who get who take up. Uh, hyperpreterism or who, who toy with it um is it, it everything is now vertical i mean the whole point of the christian life is just to go to heaven um it's not to really uh do anything on earth that that causes there to be some sort of progress we're not we don't understand progress in the modernist way but just you know um it's all it's all vertical and there's this a body spirit kind of duality dualism um and um you know earthly things and and heavenly things uh which of course is biblical language but it's i think it's misused by them so that everything is just going to remain exactly the same as it is right now on into eternity people being born people living people dying and going to heaven and it never ends um, now I know there's some variety within uh, preterist about that. Some some do say that there's an end, but uh, it's not an end in the biblical sense where things are consummated, where everything comes together and 
there's a new heaven and new earth and there's transfiguration and transformation of the, uh, the world and of, of believers' bodies. Uh, it's just that you, go, you, you die and go to heaven. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that's biblical. Now, and one more thing to say about this is back in 1999, at one of the Biblical Horizons conferences, uh, the whole conference was given over to preterism. And I don't remember, Peter, if, if you were there or not. Uh, just, it's just, I was. Were you? Yes. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, you did. You gave a couple, you gave a talk on Second Peter. That's where you started your commentary, huh? Oh. Um, well, uh, what's what I was gonna say? Oh, Jordan has a a lecture in that. I think you can find these on Word MP3 called The Heresy of Hyperpreterism, Why Jesus Must Come Again at the End of History. So that's uh, like an hour and a half lecture. It's worth listening to. I think in uh, my answer to your question, James, would be um, the dynamic, at least um, partially, would be this. Um, if you're, if you're a, uh, you've been a dispensationalist, you believe all these passages about the distant future and you've been anticipating something happening within your lifetime that fulfills all these prophecies, and then suddenly you realize that that doesn't really fit what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, for example, and you start wondering, uh, what else has have I been mistaught? And there's this kind of trajectory or pressure to, um, you know, to rethink every at every moment uh, and every passage. An understandable pressure, an understandable impulse to try to rethink every passage, uh, to try to fit it fit it into that framework. Uh, and I think in in some ways, everyone who's become a preterist has gone through that process. And you read a passage and you think, well, this looks like it's talking about a future coming. But I used to think <laughs> that this other passage was talking about uh, Jesus coming at the end of history. And I don't think I'm right about that. So there's there's that kind of impulse. I think it's also a uh, and it it can get the it can get the uh, uh, somebody somebody's used the term gnostic, and I think there's uh, there's a kind of there's a kind of gnosticism that goes with it. Not so much in the in the du dualism part, but there's a kind of gnosticism is that in in the sense that you're you're feeling that you're grabbing some secret knowledge that has been hidden from the church forever and ever, and now you have you have this insight that uh, for centuries everyone missed. And I think there's a certain kind of, uh, there's a certain kind of delight in that. There's a certain kind of, uh, certainly a temptation to think uh, that you're onto something that nobody else has seen. Um, so I think th those kinds of things are, are, are at work in, in this, uh, in this discussion. Hmm. I think that dynamic of forbidden and um, secret knowledge is definitely part of the impulse and, also, the sudden collapse of um, a sort of network of trust that you might have had, that this person is a reliable reader of scripture. And then you start to get into this world of of preterist readings, and you suddenly realize, wow, um, there's this way of reading these texts that goes completely against all that I've been taught. And then you start to go down that rabbit hole, and there are a few people who are really down in that rabbit hole who've spent lots of time writing about this and they might be the the people that suddenly you find are your guides the people you're spending a lot of time studying everything that they've written and they're going in that sort of direction because obviously this is a hobby horse for them it matters quite a great deal it's not necessarily the 
people who are touching upon this here and there in the course of a much wider biblical teaching. Um, And people can get fixated upon a particular question, whether for reasons of differences with their church or some argument they're caught in, something can get blown out of proportion. And other people who have blown that issue out of proportion will become very attractive to them as guides because that's all that they write about. And so I think that's part of the appeal too. Yeah, there's something of a pendulum swing too uh, from you know the American version of dispensationalism and uh, and disappointment with with everything, all the the predictions, all the prognostications about the end of the world and you know uh, 1948 and the Jews and building temples and you know all of a sudden people discover that hey there's a way to understand as you said Alistair the Olivet Discourse uh, differently and more faithfully um, and it's easily in your overreaction to American end times nonsense that you become immersed in this this other way of thinking uh, and just take it too far. We should move on to uh, another question. We can maybe get at least three in, but maybe we can get four in this episode. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we can. A listener asks, is there a way in which the references to the name Sheba, the etymology of which means seven or oath, as in Beersheba or Bathsheba, uh, corresponds to the creation week? I dabbled a little bit in this. I don't feel like I've got uh, a good handle on what, what might be going on, if anything, but I think one thing to one thing to note at the, right at the beginning, and then I'll turn it over to our resident names expert, Mr. B. John. Um, the, the, there are two different spellings of the what appears in English translations as Sheba. So Beer Sheba or Bath Sheba, uh, both of those uh, end with an ayin, the, the Hebrew letter ayin. Uh, but Sheba in the in the uh, name Queen of Sheba or Sheba as the name of a character or a, one of the people in the in the table of nations in Genesis 10, the location, the place name Sheba, that be- that ends with an Aleph. So um, it's it's the first of those, the Sheba with an ayin that uh, is connected with the word seven. So Beer Sheba is the, w- the well of seven, and that's connected with the narrative that surrounds it in, in Genesis 21. Uh, Bathsheba is also daughter of an oath or daughter of seven, that's the same, that's the same version of Sheba. Um, but I think in those places where you have Sheba with the ayin and it means seven, then you might have some might have some play with the uh with the with that numerical understanding of the word. Uh I I didn't find any places where the other the other word with the Aleph has um, seems to have a punning relationship with the number seven, but I, I might have missed some passages. James, you got any thoughts on those names? Uh, I've got a few vague thoughts. I mean, I, I was intrigued by uh, the question, and I'm I'm glad that you've mentioned, Peter, that these are kind of spelt differently in Hebrew, but that doesn't mean that there can't be some uh, connection between them. I, I, I sometimes kind of uh, hear people who seem to be these sort of self-appointed gatekeepers to what people can say about Hebrew names and 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 so on, and, and don't really want to get into that. I, I remember, I, th- I think I'm right in, in saying this. I think it was someone who uh, made a criticism of Alistair and Andrew 
Wilson's book on what's it called uh, Echoes in Exodus, which I think is is superb um, about their likening the Haran of um, uh, uh, the person Haran with the place Haran, and saying you you can't compare these because they're spelt differently in Hebrew. And I mean, okay, they they, they are, but I mean. Uh, <laughs> Connections between names like that don't just have to be these narrow etymological connections. They they can be sort of sound based. They can be sort of semantically um, based. There all, all sorts of things can um, go on. And and so I, I was trying to kind of think about whether there could be some uh, connection here and, and between the Beersheba and the Queen of Sheba. And I, I was thinking that you, you've got a number of things here a number of scenes or incidents that seem to bring together kind of sevens and or crowning sort of climactic moments and and the the sort of flow of water in in some ways we, we obviously start in genesis against the backdrop of a, a seventh day that's still uh open in a sense it's not closed with a, a an evening and a morning and it was um and we have the mist watering the earth and various rivers that are uh named and so we have this kind of ascent of six days if you like coming to this climax in the seventh uh day and then i'm borrowing a lot from the chapter we looked at in in jim's book here but then as the biblical narrative um unfolds you get this um uh, majoring on on water so abraham and isaac are interested in uh water they dig wells they name those wells just as the four rivers are uh weld and the flow of water there seems to be connected to the outworking of god's promise so when sarah is um taken into philistine uh, territory she is barren and in fact the, the wombs of the philistines are, are, are shut and we later learn that at that time the philistines shut up they blocked all the wells that abraham had uh dug but then with isaac um all that is uh released and, and flows again the line of promise starts to move again and isaac redigs uh wells he, he redigs the wells that the philistines uh, blocked up and and he names the seventh what might be the seventh well that he digs it's at least the seventh well it might not be exactly um but he names that shiva uh, so the, the same sort of name as, as sheba and, and and so that becomes a kind of a crowning sort of climactic moment and is associated with a, a covenant so it's associated with peace and rest and 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 various things and i've just wondered then prompted by this question as to whether the queen of sheba could continue this outflow of god's um promise kind of everywhere through the building of the temple you get this and solomon uh finished or and and the temple was finished this, this very something that sounds very um sabbatical and and seven like and i'm, I'm just wondering if the queen of, of sheba coming and, and visiting the um uh temple can can play into that as that sense of of the kind of outflow of god's um promises and 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 their um their, their climax and, and their sort of sevenfold nature but th those are those are sort of uh vague thoughts at, at the moment if i were to have some vague thoughts um they would be very much along first of all thinking about the sabbatical themes within the story of um, Solomon, where you have a series of events in which it's the kingdom is rising to its height. It's the 500th year after the Exodus. This is the 
um, Jubilee raised to the higher power. Um, to, and then there's the Queen of Sheba coming in at the climax of that. And I think there's a parallel to be drawn here between the woman being brought to the man at the climax of creation and then the bringing of those two together as the sort of Sabbath of Genesis chapter two. And so there is something similar there that the Queen of Sheba is playing something of a sort of sabbatical role um, within that story. On the relationship between Bathsheba and Beersheba, I do find it interesting that the Beersheba story is in the context of a seized well with Abimelech, and that draws our attention back to the seizing of the wife by Abimelech. Um, and if we think about the ways that those stories play off each other, the woman is connected with the well. And then in the oath that's made concerning the well, seven ewe lambs are set apart and they're taken um, by um, Abimelech as a sign about the, that the well is, is Abraham's. And I wonder whether there's something to be explored in the taking of the seven ewe lambs and um, the taking seizing of the well, the seizing of the woman and the story of David and the fact that um, it's in the context of bathing that Bathsheba is seen and she's compared to a ewe lamb by Nathan the prophet. Yeah, far be it for me, James, to uh, present myself as a self-appointed guardian of what can and cannot be said about Hebrew names. By pointing out the difference of spelling, I wasn't uh, I wasn't intending to mean you can't have those puns that you were describing. I think that's abs absolutely, I agree with that. The thing that I thought of with, with Bathsheba, uh, those are all very helpful comments. The thing I thought of with Bathsheba is that you have, that is the that is the word seven. So there's this kind of uh, sabbatical overtone to her name. She's the daughter of seven or daughter of the oath. But that what seems to be happening there, the, the relevance to the story there would be, it's kind of a, David has entered into kind of a premature uh, enthronement, a premature Sabbath. He's not out on the field when he should be out on the field. Uh, instead, he's taking rest, uh, the rest that Uriah refuses to take. Uh, David is taking with Uriah's wife. So that uh, the the reference to seven there, I think, uh, seems to be used ironically. To it's a it's a uh, it's a counterfeit Sabbath that he's, as Alistair said, that he's seizing. Yeah, Peter, I, I didn't take you to be saying that at all. I, I took. Yeah, I understand. I, I'm, right, I'm joking right. with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, something else to uh, throw in the mix, I, I guess, is, is think of um, the structure of Solomon's um, throne that he builds. These six um, steps leading up to the platform, the seventh uh, upon which he's seated, and and then perhaps the um, uh, the connection with with Jesus in John. Uh, seven, where you, where you have this last day um, of the feast, this seventh um, sabbatical day, and then out of uh, me and out of his heart will flow rivers of, of uh, living water. So I wonder if there could be kind of something to uh, uh, something to all that as well. Let's try to slip in one last uh, question in this episode. And this one, uh, and I'm going to take the one that's directed specifically to uh, James. Uh, somebody asks, what are the most important ways in which B. John's exposition of Daniel differs from that of James Jordan? What passages of Daniel does B. John see as fulfilled in the first century AD? Or where, when does he see other passages fulfilled? James, you're the expert on your views on uh, Daniel. 
Oh boy, we'd been getting on so well until then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd also like to announce that this is James' last podcast with us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so honestly, I, I uh, where is the question I'm just finding here? What what are the most important? Uh, well, I suppose I don't see any of the ways um, as particularly important. You know, I mean, we managed to work our way through. Daniel, didn't we, without any nasty, bitter um, brawls and verbal... Well, Not well, the way the rest of us remember it, James, but go ahead. Well, one, once Brian... Well, had, we didn't it, share those with the public. It's part yeah. of the, <laughs> the recording that Brian keeps to himself and will release if he has right. compromise right. on us. Which, which halves, halves the length of every episode <laughs> once the arguments have, have taken out. Um, I mean, maybe I could sort of state my view minimally um, like, like this. You know, I, I don't um, have a view of prophecy where kind of almost my decisions are made for me before I've come to the text because I kind of know, quote unquote, that the prophetic horizon of all this must be some... Uh, weird end times thing to come or it must be first century or or, or whatever um probably the main way i differ with some commentators not particularly jim's i don't want to single him out particularly i don't even know his his view for sure is that i don't see um all of daniel's prophecies as exhausted by the events of um ad 70 i, I see prophecy as having this cyclic aspect that we've spoken uh, spoken about already and and so i guess my basic idea is 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 this that daniel much of daniel is is predicated against the backdrop of this four kingdom schema and the exact identity of that fourth kingdom is, is kind of quite a pivotal uh issue for me with the coming of christ everything in the world um changes i don't think that would kind of part us but um history enters this new uh, phase satan falls from heaven the demonic realm is is stirred up um with christ's resurrection and a new body the church is is raised and and formed and it's that whole phase of um history continuing to the bodily return of jesus that i see as pictured in daniel's fourth uh kingdom and so whereas the opposition in i don't know Psalm 2, let's say, would be the nations raging against Israel, against the Jewish Messiah in the book of Acts and various other places. We see that idea reapplied to um, a, a kind of division internal to Israel. Um, the division is, is not between Israel and the Gentiles anymore, but between those who are members of God's kingdom and those who have uh, taken their stand um, against it. And, and so um, uh, that's by the, the kind of quotation of, of psalm 2 by uh, peter and, and and so forth and i would say that all that is worked out in different language in the new testament paul has the kingdom of light and darkness john has the kingdoms of god's christ and of the devil which is kind of like into the whole world in some senses and and for me that's what that whole age is what daniel's fourth beast um depicts and which is precisely why it's described as being kind of radically different from what goes before it. It is this spiritual uh, kind of uh, this spiritual battle. Um, and so whereas the previous kingdoms are all named, you know, Babylon, Persia, um, Greece, etc., this fourth beast doesn't 
have a name it's not likened to known creatures like a lion a bear and so forth it's this otherworldly um thing and it's got an iron and a clay um, element to it you know a human and demonic um aspect and so for me because i have that fourth kingdom as this ongoing entity that goes beyond the first century i guess i am free as i see it in in my mind uh, at least to have um many any of daniel's prophecies in theory at least to have this uh yet future um fulfillment so i could have these 10 kings for instance as referring to some uh powerful confederacy confederacy in um a day to come so i mean that's sort of broadly where where i am i guess Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.